that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Happy to be with you on this beautiful spring day. And very, very happy to be joined by two of my closest friends, Ms. Dolores Alfieri Taranto and the notorious P.O.B. Pat O'Boyle. Guys, good to be together, the three of us. It's been a while since we've done one, just the three of us, I think. Yeah, buongiorno. Have we ever? We did the book episode back in our archive on our favorite Italian and Italian-American history books at Dolores' house. And Dolores made us an amazing brunch, if I recall. The good old days. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the baked omelet, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> You remember, And it yeah. had, like, bacon and cheddar. Am I right? Wow. You are right. I, I that's Some kind of squash in there, too, I think. Um, I think sweet potato I did. Sweet potato, yes, very good, yeah. Where did you get that from? That's not a Stefania recipe. No, Where'd you no, get that no, from? no. Me and my mother diverge at certain points, you know? She takes one road, I take another. She's like, carb, 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 carb. That's the meal. <laughs> <laughs> I try to throw a little protein, some veggies in there. I, I, You know what, Pat? I can't remember if I made that up or, you know, I loosely followed some kind of recipe, to tell you the truth. Have you ever made it again? Do you know? I don't think so. Mm. That was a one and so. that, was that a one and done in your repertoire? I think so, but maybe if you ever come over again, I'll make it again. Invite me and I'll come. I always have to pre I always have to preview the menu before I accept invitations. <laughs> yes, that's you. That was in Downton Abbey, wasn't it? What? Didn't they bring their own chefs to visit the king or something like that? <laughs> You're like a royal visit. Yes, yeah, the movie. No, I don't have to bring my own chefs. I just want to preview the menu. That's all. Can I tell you guys that Pat Actually, John, too, and I've probably said this before, but I'm just going to repeat it. They're like the best people to cook for. If you're somebody who likes to cook and put in all that work, <laughs> they are the best people to cook for because, A, they'll eat all of it. That's number That's one. That's true. You never have to worry about leftovers. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they'll sit at the table, like old school, for hours. So, you know, like sometimes nowadays you put all this work in, everyone horks it down, and you're thinking, I just spent three hours in the kitchen it just took you 20 minutes to eat it <laughs> i'm going to bed <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but why is that uh well why do people run like that you know why yeah i, I think everybody's worried about what they're missing on their cell phone yeah that's probably I is mean, that it no i have a real i'm really asking yeah but you could sit there and check your cell phone simultaneously they're not mutually exclusive actions i had somebody tell me the other day that they were convinced and like in like a serious conversation too that they were convinced that we were at the point in social history where we were almost ready to start like eating our meals as, you know, jelly beans or donut holes with like nutrients and nothing, you know, no room left for big meals and stuff. It was all going to be about efficiency. And they were talking about these gels that runners eat. I mean, I, you, you can't mention whoever said that because I'll dissect them. In my- <laughs> <laughs> it was not a member of our tribe, was it? No. 
It was a member of our tribe quoting a non-member of our tribe. It was a it was yeah. A, that's different. Yeah. Hold on. Let's etymologically <laughs> break this down. They don't need to begin with. <laughs> that's probably true. So jelly bean person, jelly bean is not that far from how they eat already. Speaking of, you guys both probably know this. I know Pat knows this. I'm on this 40 day cleanse for my cholesterol, like a metabolic reset, and it's like super restrictive. I, well, who does this after Easter? That's perfectly made for Lent. Well, I screwed up. I, I it was 40 days. I missed it at Lent. So then I was like, I have to eat my Easter pie. So I waited until Easter Monday. <laughs> After I ate Easter Monday, I went on the cleanse. And let me tell you, you know, I lived with my wife and my parents and my brother and most of my family in quarantine. I didn't realize how much living with my dad reverted me to eating macaroni every day. I mean, I was eating pasta like every single day. And I'm craving bread, macaroni. I mean, I'm just, I'm, and the doctor who's not Italian, keeps telling me, like, you know, scientifically speaking, the way your body's processing fat and detoxing, you should not be hungry. And I'm like, listen, man, I'm hungry because I'm not eating. And I'm eating, you know. Because he does not understand the psychological. He doesn't get us. A doctor within the tribe would have understood this. Probably. You never had an Italian doctor come up with a diet, right? <laughs> have you ever heard of the Dr. Kaguta diet? Have you ever? It's always, no, seriously. No. Listen. The greatest cardiologist of all time, an, an Italian from Italy, from body, who's a cardiologist in New York, gave me the greatest advice ever. I was in my late 30s, and we, and we, were, we actually were at a dinner. He was sitting next to me, and we were just chit-chatting. He said, listen, when, in, in, a, in a twang of broken English, listen, if you want to make it to 70 years old, have a good time. <laughs> Eat, drink, smoke, do what you want. You're going to make it to 70, but you have a good time. <laughs> If you want to make it to 90, once you hit 40, 40 is an important age. We don't know why it's an important age. I would uh, be careful a little bit of what I eat. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Uh, be careful. Exercise. And then you'll make it to 90. <laughs> Probably. And that so was reasonable. It. It's so reasonable. <laughs> he didn't tell me supplement. And I take, and I, you know, I, I, I intermittent physics. I pay attention to this stuff. But he didn't sit there and say hyperbolic acid B6384. <laughs> Vitamin D, C, 9, 8. And if you don't take this, you're going to die. Yeah. That's what they tell. We don't care. I'm going to die anyway. Like, it's not like I'm going <laughs> to, it's not like I can beat death or if I would want to beat death. You know what I'm trying to say? It's going to happen anyway. So it's all, it's all about the road from here to there. Well, it's funny. Maybe this is why I was so adamant about having this episode today because I've been obsessing over food for 17, 18 days on this cleanse. And in my obsessing over food, I started reading about food because I can't eat it. So I'm reading as much food history as I can right now, which is not unusual for me. When I was studying anthropology, I gave a particular focus to food. And I came across an Instagram account that I've been following for a long time and really enjoying. It's called Historical Italian Foods. And I've been watching this wonderful historian go through recipes and presentations of different food and eating traditions and things from pre-Roman times to today. And so when it came up on my feed... I said, you know, I know she's an author. I'm going to get these books. And so I went out and I got both of the books by this wonderful author. One is called Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita. And the other is The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome. So Stephanie went out and made a quick email. And we were very lucky that we were able to find time today to sit down with Karima Moyernocchi, an author Originally from the United States, been living in Italy for 30 years and is a food historian and a professor in the Modern Languages Department at the University of Siena and Enogastronomy Master's Program at the University of Rome. So 
it's something I'm really looking forward to talking about because obviously this is the conversation we're always having when we're not eating is about eating. And so I'm very, very happy to welcome Professor Krima Moyernoki to the Italian American podcast. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I enjoyed that beginning. I, yeah, I picked up a, a new phrase, um, one and done. Um, that one, that's one I have to add to, to mine. What do you call it when you've tried something so many times, you finally perfect it, and then you don't need to ever make it again? Do you have a, one for that, Patrick? You're not Italian, are you? Uh, <laughs> no, no, I got to handicap I'm, the conversation. It's not an insult. No, 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 no. This is a compliment. Don't, don't take this. To, now they're all going to beat me up. Take this. Are you genetically, what are you, ethnically? Oh, I'm I'm not genetically Italian, but I've been here for thirty years, and yeah, but I that's would... the, But where have you been? Where have I been? In Italy. Where do you live? Oh, I live in Umbria. And eh, that's kind of Italy. Yeah, I lived for I lived for a long time in Siena, and then the rest of the time I've been in, in Umbria. Once you go above Abruzzo, it's a different country. It's like <laughs> su- it's yeah. like Southern Tyrol, because <laughs> right. you were a different Italy. There were two countries. We're two Sicilians. We never got a good adjective. That's why we can't really call ourselves what we are. But we're really two Sicilians. Once you perfect a recipe, you make it for people, and then you don't give them the recipe, or you give them the wrong recipe. So when they make it, they can't understand why it didn't come out as good as yours. That is the Italian answer to that question. And I can always tell these bloggers, I'm like a pig with truffles. I can always always smell the non-Italians. And it's not an insult, Karima. Don't take this. It's not an insult. What I'm trying to say is, well, I've reached the summit. I'll go on to the next recipe because you either have a more or less evolved mind. We have not decided that yet. The <laughs> Italians are still working. You want a story? I'm going to answer this with a, I want, I, Jesus, I like to answer questions with parables. <laughs> we knew a family that had an, a Sicilian bakery. It wasn't an Italian bakery, a Sicilian bakery. I'm not going to say where, cause they'll probably, they're not going to like this story. Then a Sicilian bakery. And when they closed the bakery, people came up and said, oh, can you give me your recipe for also the morph? Can you give me a cheesecake recipe? Can you give me this recipe? And she said, shh, I got it in the book. I'm just going to give it to you. But I'm not going to give it to you. I swear you won't give it to anybody. And they would give you the wrong recipe. They'd cut out three eggs, add two eggs. And the recipes never came out right. And they'd say, I don't understand. I tried. Just like you gave it to me. And they're like, I don't know. And then they would make it with the right recipe, give it to the person, and say, I use the same recipe I gave you. I don't understand why it didn't come out right. <laughs> but they liked my mother and gave my mother the right recipes and told her the trick so that nobody else would get them. That's when an Italian gets a good recipe. Now, that's not necessarily a compliment. Did I answer your question? Well, isn't that similar to how the Bolognese, they say that Bologna is made with, um, with mule meat, with donkey meat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> had, people, had people off at the pass. It's, uh, there was an article in the Times not long ago about the idea that you really can't make bolognese outside of Bologna, and that uh, there was. But that's a... that's true, though. Well, not that the not the bolognese, the mortadella. The mortadella uh... is made with what was told to people was that it was made with donkey meat. Yeah, I believe that's true because I know in the Cilento they would make supersada with all donkey. I mean, you can't let it go to waste. I mean, <laughs> it's back not in the... true yeah. with the mortadella. No, in the, right, in the right. in the, it is true in the Cilento because I was at somebody's house and they're like. This is about 20 years ago. They're like, oh, I can't believe you just got here. We just finished the last piece of Donkey Super Juche Super Sata. <laughs> now, I, I actually felt Donkey bad because I wanted Sata. to eat it. I wanted to eat it, and I really was crestfallen. Whether anybody still does it, I don't know. I've seen mule on menus in, uh, in Brescia, in uh, Lombardia, but it's a northern thing. Really? Where they have much more, much more um, 
uh, equi- uh, equine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. I, I, we couldn't get it out, but John and I are in Puglia. We're 15 yards from the ocean. And everywhere you go is brajol made from donkeys. It was fantastic. Not donkeys, horses. Horse. Equine brajol, which was fantastic. Mofetta had equine brajol. Yeah, it was delicious. John, if any of your horses, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they got to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Thoroughbred racehorses we, right to right to pull you. We would go we would go to Mofetta, me, Gosh. John, and my brother. What? You gotta go some way. <laughs> they're gonna go they, they, they're not gonna live forever. Me, John, and my brother were driving into Mofetta, and there was a guy pulling a horse behind a, a car in front of us. And I said, You know where he's going? Yeah. That's the he barbecue. Was... <laughs> Karima, how'd you wind up in Italy? Where are you from originally? What's what's the four one one? Like where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um I was raised in Ohio, and then I studied at University of Massachusetts Amherst, after which I moved directly to to Italy, and I've been here since then. Yeah. We're in Ohio. I love Ohio. I'm a big Ohio fan. Who loves Ohio? I, no, that's not, that's not nice. That's your homeland. Okay. It's Toledo, Ohio. Toledo's had it rough. I was very moved when I went through Toledo, and I understood what Rust Belt meant. Yeah. Gone my way to Detroit. And I say that with, with a great deal of respect. You could see economically. Am I correct, Karima? Yeah, Is that, yeah. yeah it, you could see. It's, uh, it's difficult. What are you ethnically, if I could ask? I am, uh, because I, I, I went and did a DNA test, actually. And besides being a general mix of things, as most Americans are, um, I have a very strong German part. Um, German English part on the side of my father, and then East Indian on the side of my mother, and then a lot of um, of, of stuff mixed up in between there. Oh, where's your mother from? It's actually a, an aspect of me that I don't know about, and yet I phenotype. Um, I phenotype that I look. A, 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 I certainly don't look German. Let's say that. Um, and so, I mean, culinarily here in my life in Italy, people sort of expect me to know how to make some sort of food that looks that looks like some sort of ethnicity. But um, yeah, I could see that. Know. They think it's like a genetic barcode that came on your wrist. Right. <laughs> you right. can make it's, curry um, because they think, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. They're welcome to Italy. Yeah, that's welcome to Italy. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, I think Pat asked you, yet did not allow you to answer how you ended up in Italy. Oh, okay. Um, oh, how I ended up in Italy. So I got, I started my story and of, of um, you got to so, fight for the mic here, lady. I had, yeah. I, I feel like I'm in graduate school at a, at a seminar yeah. where you're fighting with the guys so that you can get your two cents in. Yes. So how did I end up here? When I was in graduate school, I got bit by the opera bug and I was studying dramaturgy at UMass, um, uh, UMass Amherst, as I had said, and had a major fixation about opera, about Italy, and all of the dreamy ideas that people had about Italy and Italians and all of that. So I really had a strong focus on on opera, even though my, my degree was about research, because dramaturgy is about research, translation, history, writing, 
it's a, a writing degree, basically, for theater. And so during that, I came to Italy and had I did a semester abroad during my, my master's program, which was a three-year full-time program. And I came to Italy for the first time. And then I thought when I finished my degree, I would come back to Italy and just kind of spend a few years here. And I met someone and kind of got into the university. And then I got tenure at the university. Well, at that point, you don't leave. Oh, in Italy, that's a tremendous accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. You don't get tenure yeah. anyway. I mean, that's the gold star. It, it, isn't it? And, and I really, really scratched and clawed and, and worked at and, um, and then got in and felt like, you know, first of all, it, with half half the effort and time, um, I could have done something equivalent in the U.S. Um, I could have had that with it, the half that amount of ambition because it really was working a lot and working the system, a system that I didn't necessarily know how it how it even worked because it is definitely a system. That was a degree within itself. That's oh, the next God. book. A sistema. So, that is the next book. And so, so I, I got into the university and only realized sort of years later what a miracle that was. I mean, it's it really was. Just that, that's on the Lord's happen, level. Yeah, absolutely. Know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as, as well as years and years later, teaching in the Enogastronomy as an American woman of color, teaching Italians at the University of Rome at a master's level about their culinary history. I remember the first time that I was in my taxi, going to the building, driving through even the strip of Rome, the architecture going by while I was, and that kind of dawned on me who I was, I mean, what I was going to do, it was just amazing to me, so. It's interesting that you you say that because one of the things that I was so drawn to in uh, just perusing both of your books before I picked one to read, and uh, as I said to you when we came on, I'm I'm currently reading your second book first, so I'm going reverse. But one of the things I really liked about your entire sort of position was the idea that a history of Italian cuisine, starting from the idea of Italian cuisine of the most recent era, you know, we have this nostalgia on both sides of the Atlantic, throughout the diaspora, for these big feastly meals and things. But what you point out is, for the majority of Italian history and pre-Italian history, those meals were reserved for the top of the top of the top of the elite of society. Mm -hmm. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Italian culinary traditions, in many ways, have ossified, I think, into this, almost in in a French manner, into this, like, rule book. Mm -hmm. And that's happened probably, in my mind, as a historian the last maybe 40, 50 years, this idea that there's rules. And in reality, what you point out in both your works is that's not really the majority of the history of Italian cuisine. I could only imagine going in and teaching as a non-Italian, as a woman of color, as a an American, and mm-hmm. coming to this thesis that there's far more under the surface of the water to this iceberg that we think mm-hmm. of as Italian cuisine when did you come to this conclusion that what we in the world hold so dear as this Italian idea was, was really not the true history of it? Um, well, that came through my own study and my own work, but also 
with the benefit of 30 years in Italy and watching part of what you're talking about take place of the deification of Italian cuisine. Because what I'm trying to, and I'm going to use the word combat in, in my work is that there is a, um, there is a reality or a history because history is always from a perspective anyway. But there is a history of Italian food that is being completely whitewashed, swept under the table in favor of the nostalgia industry version of history, which sells a lot of products. Mm. It makes people feel jolly and good in a very simple way. Um, the Italian community very strongly looking for that sense of pride and finding it through food and um, latching on very strongly to a lot of gastro mythology. And a lot of that is also, but in a completely different way, there is a gastro mythology that Americans believe and American Italians, and then something that has a little bit of overlap with what Italians believe. Um, because it's, it's, you're just, you're bombarded with it here. You cannot go into a supermarket and find a product that doesn't have some sort of label that says something about your grandma, your aunt, your mama, where it's from, that these are special labels that are so romantic. Everything has to have some sort of reference that stirs up this romance in you, this romance of, of a past of, uh, of abundance of simple, this, this, this simple abundance idea, whereas the history of Italian food is about stratification and um, who is toiling and who is eating, the people who are eating, what they're eating, those who are toiling, what they're, what, what they're eating, uh, the abuse and the availability and the distribution um, the invention of traditions and which, which starts to get them later into what we're doing now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm blown away by what you're saying. And I'm annoyed that I didn't, I've never had to take notes before on a podcast. And today is the first day, but no, cause I want to translate something cause I know what you're saying. And I, I want to expand more on this for our listenership. You brought up a point that blew me away many years ago was that rich people in Italy a hundred years ago ate very differently than poor people. Mm-hmm. So if you take the Monzu tradition in the South, right? What was a Monzu? Monzu was a Neapolitan corruption of the French word majeure. Um, about the time of the French Revolution, the marriage of Maria Carolina, who was a Austro-Hungarian princess, the sister Marie Antoinette. There's a lot of back and forth between Paris and Naples. And there's a lot of introduction into the noble families of the South. And I can only speak for the South. Of Frenchified food, I'll call it. You know, bechamel sauce and uh, crema pasticcera custard and, and these sorts of things. And there was a woman who did a book, the name escapes me at the moment, on the Monzu tradition in Sicily. So rich Sicilian families would hire 
professional chefs, Sicilians who had trained in the French tradition. And what would happen is they would go to the houses, these noble houses in Sicily, and they'd have these big, huge recipe books of the family recipes that the family enjoyed and that the new chef would have to learn them and use them. And then when he left, the next guy would use them. But what I'm going with is, is that they found that the nobility kind of had a less of a, a, a life expectancy than the poor people because their diets, I mean, um, I never realized they weren't eating shkarol and beans and, and chigoria. They were eating ham and cream. And it's amazing in the 19th century, the kind of foods they were eating were much more Parisian than they were Palermitan. Did I hit that nail on the head, Karima? Where you're going with this? Where the poor people ate different than the rich people? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you're missing a, um, some details there. Insofar as, I mean, when you're talking about the nobility, and you're talking about an extremely, extremely small number of people, aristocracy, you don't get a middle class until later. But there is, I mean, starting in the 1300s, there's quite a bit of exchange through the International Gothic, which was a period of unprecedented cultural exchange in Western Europe, okay? And that included as well cooks exchanging ideas in the aristocratic home. So there is a, a sort of homogenization that's happening of what those people are supposed to be eating and what is excellent and what is what is fashion. So then you move on in Italy and you have the rise of uh, getting up to 1570 with Bartolomeo Scappi, okay? Um, at that point, then the French start to assert themselves and take over because it's not in the 19th century, but in the 16th century. But Italy begins to look towards France. Then you've got two centuries going on of France being the center of culinary culture and Italy looking to France as the center of culinary culture and imitating that. So then all through the 19th century, which is what you're talking about, there are precious few, very few recipes for pasta. You are not going to find in an Italian cookbook all of them written by men because there weren't any, uh, any women writing cookbooks until 1900 was the first one. Um, all of it is, is you've got the entire array of all of the sauces and, and the, the, a, a lot of the recipes have, have the sort of the pronunciation maybe in, in Italian or translation with the French next to it. Mm. Now, what happens then in 1815, the Congress of Vienna um, and, and Tayran and his chef Karem, who even though, you know, the Congress of Vienna was about the French losing, but, the, you know, that was kind of a moment in which the French really asserted themselves as far as cuisine goes. Because um, in the 19th century is when you have the buildup of the third estate, the third estate, which is the middle class. All of those people need to know they're moving into a, a different social class. Now we're still talking about a really, really small amount of people. First of all, who can read, who can read Italian, who even speak Italian um, in Italy. And um, they need to know what to eat. They need to know how to act. 
they need to know how to set a table. So a, a lot of these books in the 19th century for the first time are not being made for chefs, but for people in their homes to tell them how to eat. And it's all looking towards France. Wow. It's interesting. For, I can think from our experience, Pat and I were doing a conference in Rome one time with the Constantinian Order, and we were invited to a, a reception at the Circola della Caccia, or the Hunters Club, which is a private club in Rome, still reserved to the aristocracy of the pre-unitary states. So you have to be a noble, I, I think completely noble ancestry. I don't know the percentages they require, but you're required to be of noble origin to become a member of this club, and we were invited as guests for an event. And, you know, like most of the Italian receptions that you go to, the food is placed out. I mean, you felt like you were in the, the Gatto Pardo because everything is so beautiful and it's placed out on a long table and everybody is walking around with their drink and a small plate and going back for more. And it dawned on me how much my background is a peasant background when I went up to put on my plate what I thought was a beautiful, fresh ball of mozzarella and realized after biting into it that it was actually uh, an egg under aspic. Mm. And it was this very old sort of, you know, noble. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was a hard-boiled egg in aspic. Me and John just stood there in absolute, we were stunned. Yeah, and none of the food was familiar to us. I mean, really, none of it was anything yeah. even remotely close to what I would think of as Italian cuisine or or cuisine from any Italian region. I mean, it was like we were eating in a time machine and uh, to see people still doing it made me realize how different our culinary history is from the culinary history of this very, very small portion of the population of the peninsula. And and that idea of aristocratic eating versus common eating and the lack of a middle class for so much of Italian history, for me, that starts in the ancient Roman culinary traditions. And obviously your second book, The Eternal Table, focuses on Roman traditions in the territory of Rome and the area around it from pre-Roman times to today. I think what people think of as Italian cuisine now is so much influenced by this nostalgic idea of, you know, the tomato and pasta and things. Do you think that there is much left of ancient Roman culinary traditions or foodways throughout the peninsula today? Has that been kind of wiped away? Um, that's a difficult question to get into because you can talk about dishes, you can talk about styles of cooking and taste, which is a really difficult topic. If you talk about taste, that is something that, that tracing the things that are good and considered good and tasty um, changes. Now, if you want to say, the combination of putting beans together with a grain, all right, that's starting then in ancient Rome. But the value of how things tasted, because what you have setting up in ancient Rome is that binary concept of eating, where cultured people have a central starch staple with accompaniments. And this separated them from the barbarians who were out there just digging stuff out of the woods and killing animals and drinking beer and drinking milk. Oh, okay, those true. kinds of habits oh. that separated the Greco-Roman um, because the Greeks liked to be involved in this, even though then the Romans kind of separated themselves and made themselves much more superior. But certainly you can trace that into central starch staple becomes pasta and then you're still eating beans 
but the taste of things and the way things that are prepared and the value of what is good changes in ways that um, when I do, because I do historical, um, I do historical meals. I've got to be really careful. Now this is for Italians. I, I'm really careful about what I choose because Italians cannot stomach most of the stuff that started even prior to 50 years ago. So prior to World War II, my, my book, which is about uh, basically reconstructing my first book about uh, chewing the fat, reconstructing the fascist era through the lens of food and the, the um, oral histories collected by women in their 90s. And I use food as a lens, a, a lens for that. And I, I specifically show the kinds of foods that they considered a part of their daily life. Give us some examples, because we get this. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, yeah. We grew up with this stuff, so give us like... What's something that today, when you're preparing a meal, you know, you're, you're concerned about adding because, you know, uh, modern Italians can't stomach? Um, my, my husband was really good about food. Um, he's Italian, and I can make all kinds of foreign foods for him, and he's, he's good. It's much more difficult for him to go back into his own past. So let's just take Artuzzi, for example. And, um, you know, he talks about, he does this brain pudding, which he says is a very delicate dish, which is suitable for young women. Okay. Um, then if we go back to 1570, okay, you've got whole small birds cook in crusts, lots and lots of interior meats, the interiore, the uh, awful. I got to ask you a question, Karima. Yeah. Me and John love awful, yeah. right? I love gabuzel. If it's fatty and internal, I love it. Right? He loves it. I go to the, do you find that the modern attack, because they get on my, I go to Italy and people get on my nerves. Because like, oh, you, you eat that? Do you find there's a repulsion in Italy now toward that sort of brains and, and, and tripe? And is, is there a cultural? Right, if you're talking about, it, 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 well, tripe is a little bit different, but it is definitely moving much more towards that. My, um, my Machilaya, who she, she had to unfortunately close down, she closed down for COVID, went out of business. But it's very difficult for them. She said, everyone comes in and they want the muscle. They want it to be lean. No one wants anything that's fat. So they get whole animals and, you know, have no use for the other bits. Wow. People don't want the other bits, but besides that, they don't know how to prepare them. Yeah. And I think people think of Italy as so protective of its culinary heritage and like the slow food movement and all these things, but it, it is indicative of, a globalizing world, a faster paced world. I think a lot of this stuff is getting lost. And I think one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot that I think is really interesting is, uh, again, you you said it best, the deification of these recipes, right? And there's mm -hmm. a huge gap and, and oftentimes a, a contentious interaction between Italians and Italian Americans about food ways. You know, like I posted a family recipe, right? My family has made pastiera for Easter. My, my entire life, my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, mm -hmm. and it's evolved, you know, through the interaction with people when we moved to America, people that have come into the family. It's evolved from, I'm sure, what was very regionally tinged pie in the Valdiviano to an Italian-American version, and I posted it, and I got a comment that said, you know, I'm from Naples, and this is not a Neapolitan mm -hmm. pie, and it's like, well, you know, it's called Neapolitan because of the sort of... Yeah, but hold on a minute. I got to jump in. But, you know, they're, they're victims of their own comments because if you go five miles out, it's different. Yeah, 
That's a yeah, Brooklyn pie. It's, a, it's not a Naples it's a, pie. You're right. Who am I? It's a Brooklyn pie. My, Thank my you. point is more the idea that like we have this police force. Of, There's an uh, authentic. The I call them the authenticity police. Right. Yeah, it's really crazy to me. Yeah, and I, and yeah. It's so boring. I'm just over it. It's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Karima, I gotta add, I gotta put a theory to you that Rosella has that kind of blew me away. Rosella's theory is, and I've said this for a long time. Italy's future has become its past. Yeah, exactly. So they're no longer a country of innovation or technology or invention. Exactly. Or, you know, fashion or film. They're a country that's become one big museum from the Alps to Sicily. So it's because of a lot of economic factors that have plagued Italy in, say, for the last 40 years. The only thing they have left to sell in that sense is their past. Right. So they have to make the past into kind of like um, a product. This kind of protected product this kind of safeguarded product because it's all we have left because we're not doing new things so we have to live on the past do you concur with that theory or do you have your yes, own i absolutely concur with it and to very much to the detriment of the evolution of italian cuisine which is what i study and it's a huge evolution despite the comforting feeling that the idea of timelessness gives and immutability, and that nothing has ever changed in Italian culinary traditions. First of all, we'd still all be eating mush, <laughs> which is pulse and, and pulmentarium, if nothing had ever changed in Italy. We would not be eating pasta. But the beauty of what we love about Italian cuisine today is the product of a vast evolution. Then what you have with that intervention of the nostalgia industries is a double street. On the one hand, people are afraid of losing their traditions, and so they're stopping them in their tracks by codifying them, which is what the French had always done. French food is a very strictly, severely codified culinary tradition, whereas Italian food has never been that until now. So now, Italy has more certified dishes, foods that, than any other country in Europe. Hmm. More of the thing with the DOPs and the IGTs and all of those different sigle for stopping food in its tracks. So if you go to Bra, for example, and you get the little Bra sausage, it is that exact same sausage everywhere you go. And it's not going to change. So on the one hand, you're talking about We've got to safeguard our traditions because we perceive that things are going to hell in a handbag. And that's not untrue. But then you have the authenticity police coming out saying that it's got to be this way. Now, how do you choose what the right recipe is when up until that point, Authenticity means that there are a series of authorities and authors of a recipe over time who have been making this thing and not necessarily the same way from 150 years ago to, to up to now. How do we choose on that timeline where the right moment is to stop time? Your favorite entertainment made in Italy. Mediaset Italia has new dramas, addictive quiz shows, and the hottest reality TV this spring. Tune in for new seasons of Italy's favorite talent competition, Amici, the fastest quiz show around, Avanti Un Altro, celebrities marooned on an island in L'Isola dei Famosi, and don't miss new dramas airing Wednesdays starring your favorite Italian talents. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia for $10 a month plus taxes 
or Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com slash mediaset or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. All programming subject to change. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. You know, we talk about this idea of sort of purposefully ossifying recipes, preserving them as they supposedly were, as we remember them, as they sell best to the outside world and even to the inside world. There's also the case of sort of doing the same thing with these ingredients and some of these products, right? We have all of these designations for different products that are regionally specified and have to be made a certain way, like you talk about the sausage up in Bra. As much as the intention is to do good and to put a quality stamp on something and protect it, doesn't it also kind of run counter to that in that, again, we create this ossification, this lack of diversity, this industrialization of a flavor, of a taste, of an experience, of a product? Because, I mean, in some sense, it just destroys any creative culinary ingenuity, right? In my research, I was out by the Tiber foraging sow's thistle. And, you know, and did my research on it. And Puglia has, as one of their certified things, sow's thistle, they have certified as their food. Okay. Sow's thistle is like a kind of dandelion that grows everywhere. It's arbitrary. That it, it's very arbitrary. Is this a literal certification or just kind of self-claimed? Oh yeah. Okay. There are, there are different levels of it. Um, so the big ones, if you're talking about a DOP or an IGT, those are European union certifications. You need to prove that you have, um, actually the, the period of time is only 25 years, but that you can go 25 years back and demonstrate through documentation that this has been used in your area and that specific to your area and it's particular and good and you treat it in a certain way in your area okay then there are other ones the deco for example which is given by the local community as a, a, a different kind of certification um, the certification of traditional foods can be prepared foods uh, agricultural certifications but all of those certifications are part of this phenomenon that we're talking about, about stopping food in its tracks and making sure that the quality is maintained, yes, but also in some ways that it doesn't move on. You know, you talk about these DOPs and these I, IGPs or whatever the yeah. acronym they use, there's, there's 8,000 levels of it, right? Right. And <laughs> it, I'm stunned to hear you say it's as little as 25 years. 25 years, that's right. Frankly, I've been making certain recipes that I made up for 25 years. You know what I mean? I don't, uh, I don't that, that, that doesn't say much. But the question of authenticity is one that we wrestle with on this show a lot because, mm-hmm. you know, as a diasporic community, as a post-immigration community, people always want to talk about what's authentically Italian-American. And, of course, then we're, we encounter Italians who want to criticize our version and say that it's not authentically Italian because we don't live in Italy. And, and I, I'm an anthropologist by education, so I, I – cringe at the word authentic because mm-hmm. as soon as like you say you put an authority on any of these things you dehumanize it because mm-hmm. food is a human construct and, it, and it's something that you know i could have a recipe that's been passed down perfectly replicated through 
10 generations of my family that no one's ever had before because it was made up. But that's real and authentic to me. So to me, authenticity is so individualized. But I think the interesting thing is the more Italy and the European Union and the rest of the world moves towards these things, in some ways, like you say, we hurt them. So I look at the slow food movement, and I'm thinking of, uh, in particular, the the project, and I always forget what it's called, but basically the arc of uh, flora of and food. fauna. Right. Yeah, right. the arc of food, based <laughs> off of the idea of Noah's Ark, that we have to save these, you know, we're saving seeds. And, we're sa- and the main reason behind so much of this is that growers are disincentivized from growing things that have been part of, you know, culinary staples for centuries or decades into centuries in order to grow stuff that feeds to this uh, homogenized, nostalgic-driven idea of what Italian food is. So this idea of preserving it and crafting this marketable entity is in many ways also killing what's actually authentic, even in terms of the ingredients, because you know that the space is not there to grow them when you have a much larger scale farms and the customer base is not there to buy them because people are buying these things that they're being told is the authentic and the nostalgic. And I, and I think the idea of how we treat ingredients is important. Like I, I've been reading this old uh, Neapolitan cookbook, a translation of an old Neapolitan cookbook. It's uh, Neapolitan recipe collection. Oh, uh, goodness. Yeah, that's very intense. It's yeah. very intense. I, I don't understand half of it. But I've been fascinated by how much ginger comes up in pre-Columbian Neapolitan cuisine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the tomato's absent because it didn't exist in the old world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I was shocked to see ingredients like ginger and, and so many spices that are just, you know, not thought of in Italian cuisine anymore. Sometimes I feel like if you tried to cook with them, people would hang you out to dry. But when I watch you cooking on historic Italian food, your Instagram feed, I notice you're you're constantly digging into really diverse historic recipes. What would you say is the one that you've tried that you've found, A, you like the most as an addition to your own culinary life, and B, has been most uh, widely appreciated by the people you've shared it with? What's a recipe that you've maybe revived from the dead that uh, that you've particularly liked? There's a very little-known book called... Um, il, il crepeo del gentiluomo that has a kind of gnocchi that are made with um, with breadcrumb, and then a lamb that has been cooked with spices. Now, when we're talking about spices, sugar and cinnamon was used very much like we use salt and pepper. Mm. So it was just something you threw on everything. So it's done with this lamb that is, first of all, baked, and then you debone it. So at this point, it's already well-baked and browned, and it's got those spices on it. And then you you put it into a pan, and it's cooked. This is another thing. The amount of cooking with lard is something that people have have the, the imagination about everything dripping in olive oil. It was not dripping in olive oil. Um, a lot of it was lard and a lot of it was butter. Um, That's, that is so true. That is so, so true. Because that was, that was what was readily available and affordable. Olive oil becomes, it comes into play when the idea of a cholesterol profiling and then Ansel Keys and uh, Eat Well, Stay Well, which then came, became Eat Well, Stay Well, the Mediterranean way in the 1970s. That's when the idea of 
oh, we've got to eat olive oil now came about. Um, let me finish the recipe with a lamb. It's, a, it's basically a fricassee, which you're cooking things in two ways. First baked, then stewed. You're stewing a baked lamb. Hmm. And then that is going on top of these very small gnocchi that are done by wrapping it around a, a stick. Um, you're making these nib-sized things that are breadcrumb-based, but have egg in it so that they stick together. Those get boiled, putting that wonderfully spiced lamb on top. That's something that goes really well. Wow. You're making me hungry. I mean, I've been hungry for 18 days, but now you're making me really right. hungry. <laughs> where, was, where was that from regionally? Um, he's from Piemonte, or from the Piemonte area. That's really fascinating to me because something I'm passionate about is this idea of you know time travel through through eating. I mean, oh I, uh, god, yes. I'm writing now. This is the first time that I'm saying this publicly, so you get the exclusive. All right, I love it. We got an exclusive here, folks. You got an exclusive. Okay, uh, but I'm I'm close enough to that I can to to that I can say I'm currently writing a history of pasta cookbook. Wow. And the premise of this book is taking history and going back, but having a, a sensual, meaning through the senses, relationship with history by eating it, by consuming it and taking it bodily, by smelling it through your nose, the touch of it through your hands, while it's cooking, having that experience of through time, how that changed. And then as well as on the palate and the experience in the stomach as well. So um, the consumption of history to me is so sensual, not in the sexual way, but sensual in, in, in all of the senses and communing with history to me is just the greatest thing. And doing that through food. Now, of course, you can only replicate up to a certain point, but up to that certain point, for me is good enough. <laughs> so, well, I think as a as a history geek in cooking, like you say, it's really the only thing we have that can be that many senses at once because you can go to the Roman Forum today. You you can go to the Pantheon. It's a, it's a complete intact Roman building, but it, it's not time travel. It, it's it's awe-inspiring, but when you can eat a recipe and and realize that you're pretty close to what we assume was being eaten, you know, 1000 years ago or 2000 years ago. When you're looking at the past, there's this passage of time and development of traditions that then means something to us now. And we frame history for the meaning that it has for us now and eat the food and engage with history in that way. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why it becomes so disheartening when we see this ossification, this snobbery, this codification of food. Because we should be able to find a balance between that nostalgia for the past and that warm effect that food always has on us and the idea of innovation and evolution and, frankly, individualization of how we eat and what we eat. Because none of these recipes sprung up from the ground fully formed. You know what I tell people all the time, especially in Campania? And I, I might be off with the time frame. I guess it was about 1800. You know, from my understanding, the, the Sunday main meal on Campania was a menesta maridata. And then somebody decided to replace the Menesta Maridata. For those who don't know, that's like a 
a soup with greens, like shkarol, chigoria, and little meatballs and, and ribs. And it was boiled meat with green vegetables. Right. The soup was eaten first. The meat was eaten later. And somebody decided to basically take that concept and used it with tomatoes. And the ragu was born from the Menesta Maradada, and it took the place of the Menesta Maradada on the Sunday table. Neapolitans in, in 1400 and 1500 were not eating uh, schiaffadun, a big pockety macaroni with tomato sauce. No, they certainly weren't. Right, but it's become the face of the Neapolitan nation of Campania. And I say to people all the time is that, why are you so rejecting of outside flavors when it was the tomato that came from the new world? That's become the symbol of these people. What would have happened if the ossification had said, no, no, that is what we eat on Sunday. No, no, this tomato thing just can't happen, which is the, the modern Italian mentality. I don't know if you concur with that. You live there, I don't. Well, actually, what happened was something very similar to that, because you have the, um, the tomato that comes into Italy uh, first documented in, I believe it was 1544. and then. Um, it sort of takes a long time for it to enter into the, 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 the culinary sphere. So you don't have the first recipe using tomatoes until 1691, but it's still not being associated with pasta and sauce. When do you think that happens? The first documented recipe that combines a tomato sauce on a Durham wheat pasta is in 1873 in a Neapolitan cookbook. Wow. And so, so you're, I mean, you're talking about, about centuries passing by. Yeah. But also the tomato was in the Belladonna, the nightshade family. Okay. So it's perceived as a poison. It's, it was a very decorative plant. The reason that it went on was because it looked really nice in the aristocratic garden. <laughs> and so it persisted for that. But it also didn't serve a purpose like, for example, polenta, okay, corn polenta, because before corn polenta, polenta was still some, but it was anything that was a grain. So polenta comes in and it serves a purpose because it fills the stomach of the poor. That resolves a problem which the tomato does not solve. The tomato is not going to fill up the stomachs of the poor. Then in Naples, when, when something that you were talking about, Patrick, with the changeover from what's being called the mangiafoglie, people who are having basically a diet of, of beans and, and greens, became the mangiamaccheroni. During the 19th century, when changes were taking place that made pasta economically viable, particularly in Naples, to feed the hordes of Naples who were very poor. You have all of those photographs of people lifting the pasta and dropping it down into their throat. People who didn't have kitchens eating that as street food. They didn't even have the benefits of forks. Really, if you put sauce on that, you're just making a mess. Okay. Wow. I never thought of that. That's why the condiment is grated cheese, because it holds on to the wet spaghetti. It clings, but it's not all. Yeah, I get that now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but the condiment is, is grated cheese, however, because um, Parmesan has a very, very old history. And that was picked up on as the kind of ubiquitous finish for pasta because 
Parmesan cheese is an umami that has a, um, a naturally occurring monosodium glutamate, which uh, excites the, the taste buds. Wow. Okay. And it amplifies the experience of tasting food. Why is it that every single pasta seems to go good with Parmesan cheese? It's a great question. You know, yeah, there you go. Wow. You know, it's funny that we end up at the end of what has been a beautiful meandering conversation with an amazing authority on a topic that we're all passionate about. And I know now you have shared with us, and we're very honored to have the exclusive, that the next book is on the history of pasta. So God bless you for undertaking that task, because I'm sure that is uh, an, an opus to write. But what interests you after pasta? Do you have any idea where you want to go and what comes after pasta? Um, the pasta thing consumes my life, and I don't mean this in a negative sense. My life is really about that book and about knowing and understanding pasta and as many pasta forms and the developments of it and also that sensual thing. I've been just thinking about going over this in my mind of all of the ways that that hands are applied to that dough. I mean, you're talking about two, three, or max, you know, three ingredients in dough, and having that express your culinary identity through shapes and the kind of sauce and the way it's going to be prepared, the extra little fold that you're going to put on it. So I'm deeply, deeply consumed by this and, and going through every single pasta shape possible and, and researching. Um, I can't even think about what would be next. I've been approached to do a translation of um, Le Ricette Regionali Italiane, who was published in 1967. The fruit of the research of Ana Gossetta de Salda this book, which for me is one of those snapshots of what regional Italian cooking was. In the 1950s, you're going through reconstruction, post-World War II reconstruction, and um, the Americans come in who are, who are also have certain expectations about what Italian food should be, which is when pizza takes off, okay? Because it certainly didn't before that. Um, it was considered a, a filthy kind of rag. Then you have what's called the economic miracle. Italy undergoes an unprecedented economic growth, major exodus from the south to the industrial north, and that's bringing about an enormous change in food. A lot of tourists are coming in. What people are perceiving as Italian food is what the restaurateurs want to make. So in Torino, you go to Torino and you say, well, where's the pizza? You want pizza? I'll make your pizza. Right. And people are learning to make pizza because that's what the tourists want. That's what people are, had, had learned from going up from the south to the north. That's when the idea of Italian cuisine established because it's very much about economics, also about people leaving the rural South, the exodus. So this, this, this whole idealization 
of the country life and, and the abundant table of the South and um, um, people couldn't wait to get out of the South and move to the North and work in a factory. It's interesting because when we talk about that era on the show, Pat has so aptly termed it the Italy of Nutella, the rye Italy, when, when radio, you know, rye, the national state radio, yeah. starts to really create a homogenized Italy through homogenized Italy. eventually TV and then the idea of Nutella and tiramisu and fettuccine Alfredo and all these post-war things that not only spread with the migration of workers, but they also spread with the tourists that come in and their demands, like you right, say. Right. And then they spread out to the world with the tourists that go back and say, well, right. this is what I had in Italy. And right. so it's really interesting to see that. So I'm, I'm very much hoping that this snapshot that you referenced in this 1953 cookbook that That's when she took over. So it's... it's um, she started researching it in the beginning of the 60s and published in 1967. So it's published in 1967, but it start, but it, but it is that for me is the last, the, the last snapshot of um, regional Italian cooking. It's an enormous tome of 2,000 recipes, and so I'm thinking that that will be my next project after I finish the pasta book. You want an interesting statistic that backs up your theories. Hmm. Um, when the mass migration came, let's say from 1880 to 1920, I'd say it's an even earlier. Yeah. The Germans, the Irish, a lot of them came here, especially the Germans went to the Midwest. So they were farmers in Germany, farmers in Norway. They came to America, went to the Midwest and became farmers again, except they had a lot more land than they did back home. The Italians did not want to farm. Very, very few Italians came here and went back into agriculture. They didn't leave the farm in Campania come here and get another farm because to them, farm life was brutal and, and difficult. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And the factory work to them was less perilous than a farm had been. Right, right. So I think a lot of times we have this with, you know, I always say I had a, I had a client. I'm a lawyer. I had a client. She told me a fantastic story. It had to be, um, she was born about 1912. To make a long story short, her stepmother had said to her in Calabria uh, in the early, in the late twenties, go to America. In America, you eat bread every day. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was like some kind of poetic, you know, and she said, no, no, we were so poor. We only ate every other day. Mm-hmm. And she said, she had heard in America, you could eat every day. Mm-hmm. And that's why she picked up and actually went to um, Pennsylvania. I think it was Rosetta. She actually went to, that's why she went to Pennsylvania was because you could eat every day. <laughs> so this kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a beautiful fairy tale, but it's a fairy tale. Right, right. Yeah, oh, that's that's a that's actually you know a relatively common story about um you know pee every day in 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 the U.S. and but that that's also why it's so important for the Italian American community and why the idea of the overstocked groaning table that Sunday um, just too much food um, was so important. First of all. Italians don't want to leave Italy. And so when you do leave Italy, you've got, you, you want to show other people, yes, I made it. I made it in, in America. And look at my table. It's got so much food that, it, you know, and, and a lot of meat as well. Yeah. Well, I think it was a counter also because they knew they lost family members from starvation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They knew they had children who died because, because they were so undeserved. Yeah, yeah. But that demonstration, the ostentatious display of food uh, that is very important for the Italian-Americans, that's not what happens in general in Italy, where it's about 
you become wealthy, so you become reserved at the table, you know? Yes, I've said it all the time. The more money you have in Italy, the less food you put out. Right, that's right, that's right. That's why I'm happy to be a peasant. <laughs> <laughs> My grandma say, Banza cane faccia contento. Full belly, happy face. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, it's brilliant to be able to talk to somebody like yourself who uh, can view all of these things from an objective perspective with so much passion and dedication to the history. And I, I wish that more Italian-Americans understood Italy in a mm-hmm. significant way and in a sincere way, and more Italians understood Italian-American the same way because I think it's brilliantly said that the abundance that's put out on our table is almost seen as a a validation of the sacrifice that's made to come here and leave a place that even as hard as it was, people did not want to leave. And I think that that's... Um, Something that stays with us, and I, uh, but we also do like to eat. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. Well, you know, we do. I mean, let's not try to. But we're American, right? I mean, away. we are American. Yeah, but I mean, like, like we're not. You know, we like yeah. to eat. It's in the yeah. DNA. But it's yeah. you know, and, and starvation uh, psychologically does a really huge amount of damage. Yeah. Um. And and so making up for that and showing that you um, can provide for yourself is a sense of comfort. It's a sense of relief, certainly, you know? Yeah. And we talk about that a lot, this idea of ancestral memory and ancestral trauma and blood memory and things. And I think mm-hmm. that that does stay with yeah, you. Yeah. I think that that idea that, you know, even now in an era when we know about healthy diets and healthy amounts and things like that, you do want this stuff on your table almost as a security blanket. Right, and exactly. I, and I think that that's, I wish Italians, more Italians could understand that about us and, and see us with empathy for the immigrant experience, for what we've left behind, and for where yeah, we've evolved. I think that's regional too. You don't get criticized from Southern people for having a full table. It, it's the Probably guy. True. It's the guy from from the north of Italy who doesn't think that the guy from Campania is Italian even to begin with. That has you know, oh, ma quanti esagerati? That kind of <laughs> yeah, comment. Yeah, yeah. There's some. There's there yeah, is some also some prejudice there about um, the the lack of reserve or yeah that see the north and south. That's true. Well, I'll tell you, no matter how we are. In our differences, I know I can speak for our entire crew and our entire audience when I say everybody is anxiously awaiting the opportunity to return to Italy. So I very much hope that after this very diverse conversation, you've enjoyed your time with us enough that when we are all allowed to go back, we can uh, get together and at some point sample some of the amazing recipes that you have revived and preserved for us so that we can experience this wonderful opportunity to time travel through the blessing that is food and uh, the passion that has gone into it for thousands and thousands of years. So if you're ever up for it, when uh, travel restrictions are lifted, we'd love to come to Italy and see you and uh, and share a meal and discuss even more in depth uh, where it comes from and where it's going, because this has been a, a wonderful conversation. So thank you for being here. That would be absolutely fabulous. And thank you for having me on this uh, show. It's been a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. And for our audience that wants to get these amazing books, obviously I got them on Amazon. You can get them on Amazon. But could, would you share your uh, social media and web presence? How come they didn't send me a copy? How come Stephanie? I bought it. I paid for it. I paid for this myself. <laughs> I would have paid I know, for but it. I didn't, but I'm I didn't not ask cheap. Stephanie to do it. I didn't it. even know the book. Well, I don't. But I didn't even know. Like when she's ordering for no, you, no, I ordered I get for myself. Copy? I did it myself. But then, I, then why didn't you tell me? Nobody told me about the book. I sent you two pictures. I said you have these. Remember, you don't listen it's, to me. I get too much. I get too yeah, many yeah, emails, pictures, text messages. You gotta make it simple. I'm like, I'm uh, making simple. Stephanie, for let's me. send them two books. No, I'll pay. For, <laughs> no, no, because I don't want now. Because that's what big. Like, I wanted a freebie. I don't right. want a freebie. I'll buy my own book. I'll figure out this Amazon thing <laughs> one of these days. Like, quick. Uh, 
click, click, swipe, click. I would like to say that if you would like to support my work, it's very helpful for me with publishers that they see. Unfortunately, it's, it's important to see that I have followers on Instagram. It's um, historical Italian food that that says to um that says to publishers that that i have a following and it makes them feel more comfortable but i also love the uh, just doing the the instagram thing so it's definitely one of my favorite accounts to follow and i highly recommend anybody in our audience who wants something to enjoy you're a wonderful personality you're obviously just beyond uh, super intelligent and informative and, and you give so much in a concise way in this account so Highly recommend going following uh, Karima and her historical Italian food account on Instagram. And we'll link it in the show page for those of you who are listening from our website. Okay. And uh, I'll be following along, looking forward to the next thing, and certainly on the pre-order list for this tome on the history of pasta, because that's going to be very fascinating as well. So thanks again for being out here, and uh, come back when the new book comes out. We'd love to have you again. Thank you very much. So for those of you out there who can eat, Please have a, a meal for me now. And uh, You've gotten so cranky since you've been on this diet. I have gotten really cranky. It's not good for your mental health. You're, you've been so cranky. You're grumpy all the time. I know. I you got to eat. Wait, I'm sticking up for him. He has been very awesome with me. He has thank not you. been cranky and not been uh, mean. So I'm much. sticking up no, for he's you. Not, he's not himself. I'm very concerned. <laughs> this, is a, this is like a, what you call the psychological um, bombardment of food deprivation. Well, let me tell you, I miss it. I miss... I miss my pasta. I miss my bread. I miss my cheeses. I miss. I can't even eat tomatoes on this diet, so I'm, oh. I'm really struggling. But I will say, if you if you are the lucky ones out there who are uh, indulging in whatever you'd like, go out and find something with a little bit of history to it. Get some good fresh ingredients. Go in the kitchen, make it yourself, and uh, yeah, there's something in that that transports you back into our heritage, our history, and the experience of those who came before us. So, thank you, Karima, for preserving and protecting and propagating so much of this so that we can do that so i hope everybody goes out and cooks for themselves uh, send us an instagram send us a, an email let us know how the meal came out and thanks for listening and we'll see you next week so see that you're born in italiano and your life will be great see that you're born in italian if you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano and your 